Colin and Samir. They are described as your favorite YouTubers, favorite YouTuber. Colin and Samir. Colin and Samir. Colin and Samir. And it's because they lit the beacon that the creator economy is maturing. And after 10 years of trying YouTube, and even at one point giving up and going home, we stopped. They found their format, an interview show exploring what it means to be a creator. Welcome, you're on the Colin and Samir podcast. Right, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for having me, man. This is incredible. So what entertains Mr. Beast? Oh boy. So I think YouTube is a video game. I'm on a treadmill that I cannot sustain. If you don't feel like there's purpose behind your work, it's going to get old. No one is doing anything close to what you guys are doing. Appreciate that. And they rode that show with over 100 episodes all the way to a million subscribers. But... Hosting an interview show isn't what they truly wanted. Our roots are in documentary. 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 We've always wanted to make a documentary. I'd never done anything like this. We flew out to New Jersey without a plan. The Mr. Beast documentary was one of the best pieces of content of last year. Could you break down some of your choices? If you're watching this because you want to edit like Colin and Samir, then you should know how to get great interviews. In fact, they even interviewed me with it. Riverside. All the remote interviews we've had have been recorded with Riverside. Ryan Trahan, Euphoria, and even the team at Pixar have all been in our Riverside studio. But the best thing is that Riverside recordings are significantly better video and audio quality than anything we've ever used. The magic is that the interview is actually recorded locally. So if the internet bugs out, if anything happens, we still have the recording. Riverside is also great for us editors because they get each of our cameras and audio as separate recordings. There's no need for us to download and re-upload. Podcast operations made easy. So go to the link in the description and use code EDITINGPODCAST for 20% off. And without further ado, here's the editing breakdown. YouTube star Mr. Beast, whose real name is Jimmy Donaldson, has more than 100 million subscribers. And now he's got a burger joint. In comparison to how most like YouTube videos, like it is quite, uh, quite a loud thing, but you wanted to relay the message straight away. Hey, this video is going to be different. We want to see Jimmy in a context that we've never seen him before, mm-hmm. which is being ordered around. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this, he, he doesn't have full control over the scenario. And we want to start with a moment of action of like, okay, where is he going? Jimmy, yes, Thousands of people crowded the American Dream Mall in East Rutherford. And then we get into the building of the context. So we see a location shot of this wide of the mall. We see Jimmy walking and we see him in an environment that we've never seen him before mm-hmm. of looking around camera angles, zooms on things that Jimmy is never in this context. So we immediately know that this video is presenting him in a different way than we've ever seen before. I think even down to the camera angles too, because yeah. Jimmy always shoots like super top down on himself. Mm-hmm. That awesome. low angle, like, yeah. oh, he's in the middle of a crowd. It's chaotic. Like what happens next. I think that's brilliant. We also recognize the importance of of retention and the importance of hooking people. So like these first 25 seconds, pretty high pressure. And I think something that's really unique is that Colin said to me, hey, we've got all these news clips. Is there a way that we can use these as our cold open or in some way shape this into an opening? Thousands of people crowded the American Dream Mall in East Rutherford for a restaurant opening. These aren't YouTubers talking about this. This is traditional media talking about this, which means... It's big. Some fans traveled from far away for the big grand opening. And traditional media assumes you know nothing Mm -hmm. about Mr. Beast or about what they're talking about. So in terms of setting context, a news clip, a local news clip can go so far. It can explain to my mom, who like doesn't watch a ton of YouTube, 
what's about to happen. I think one thing that we were really conscious of through these first 37 seconds is the introduction of fans and the number of people that we see. If you see, we start, it's just on Jimmy. It's Mm -hmm. just Jimmy for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then we see Jimmy walking to a crowd Mm -hmm. and then we see like two fans and then we see like five fans and then we see a crowd of fans. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it all builds to him walking onto the balcony. And that was really intentional. We wanted that slow build of like, Okay, how many people are here? How many people? How many people are here? <laughs> yeah. What is going on? And we we talked about how this day was like a hurricane. There was yeah. the calm before the storm and then there was the eye of the storm. Yeah. And this is our version of a cold open mm-hmm. for a documentary. And so the goal was let's end at the eye of the storm. And some have never even tried one of these burgers. The match cut is that was Colin's match cut. The first time I saw that, it like blew me. The first time I placed that, I was like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. For me, it's still my favorite cut. It's the one where we cut to the crowd. So, in this moment in the story, he has been in the crowds a bit now. He's trying to take photos with everybody. He's argued with Reed a little bit. I need to keep this line going. I don't care. I need the line going. And in this moment, he's talking about how many people there are outside and like f- trying his best to figure out how do we manage this many people. I mean, we have like 150 people just plus the boys doing our best. We are, we are outnumbered. <laughs> we are. We're outnumbered a thousand to one or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just felt so right. Yeah. It was like, okay, how do we prove this? Yeah. We're outnumbered a thousand to one. Just show the thousand yeah. and then cut back. That moment also feels suffocating to me. And like mm-hmm. those, the kids in that shot are reaching towards the camera. Yeah. And it feels almost to me, it's like Jimmy is imagining all of these people reaching towards him. The yeah. camera in that moment is Jimmy. It's yeah. Jimmy's imagination. It's Jimmy's brain. Mm-hmm. And then we cut back and we're in reality again. Yeah. And it's just him sitting silently. That's yeah. the best part of the yeah. cut yeah. is the silence. Yeah. Right. When you cut back to him. That be right yeah. there. That's the best part it, of it. That's one of the things I really appreciate about this. It's like everyone who was at that mall was there for Jimmy. But to an extent, that was quite an overwhelming force. Like he yeah. described it as a storm. And so to an extent, naturally and organically, the crowd is an antagonistic character. Yeah. But you also had to make sure that it wasn't in a disrespectful way. We had to make sure this was a big thing for us the entire way through is we had to prove that the crowd was happy. For Jimmy, it's an antagonist. Yeah. But we need to make sure that they're happy because they were happy. Yeah. And like, it needs to be clear. And then, and that was when like, we cut a montage over a fan singing his song, his like theme song on a guitar. And we cut a montage of like people laughing and cheering and like- And that, that, was- that montage ends perfectly with Samir asking a fan who just got their burger, are you happy? Are you happy? I achieved my goal. That's the main thing. I achieved my goal. This whole narrative was about taming a beautiful beast. Hmm. It's big, it's powerful, but it's taming it and making sure, hey, I love you, I respect you, I wanna make sure that you are happy. Even though you're an overwhelming force, I wanna do everything I can for you. And I think that just defines Jimmy's arc for that, this whole thing. It's like, I want to make you the happiest that you can be today. And here's everything that I can do for you today. It was so easy to slip and make the crowd antagonistic or evil, Mm -hmm. but you went, no, this is, this is what we're here for. And another thing that I think was pretty intentional is like we wanted to 
to compare and balance the idea of Jimmy and then the restaurant. And so we have this match cut of a restaurant employee walking and then we see the back of Jimmy walking. Nice. So the whole way through, we're getting these parallel stories of Jimmy and his own struggle and his own work with taking pictures with people and figuring it out. And then also the storyline of the restaurant. How is the restaurant doing? And we had to keep the entire way through jumping back and forth mm-hmm. and showing sometimes Jimmy's in a good place, restaurant's in a bad place. Sometimes mm-hmm. restaurant's in a bad place, Jimmy's in a good place. It was kind of like, we know we've got like the top of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. What's happening at what we would call maybe the bottom. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, behind the scenes, the restaurant in front of everyone is Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a moment at the very end of the piece too where we get Jimmy walking in the kitchen right next to staff. And it's almost this resolution. And this is like those two worlds now are meeting and you're seeing their interaction really for the first time since the very, very beginning. Yeah, there's been a balance between them on the totem and then it's like them kind of coming together. There's a line here that Colin was really, like, really insistent on keeping in. Give it up for your dishwasher. And Colin pointed out the balance of going straight from the dishwasher, who's the very, very, very bottom of that totem pole, cutting straight back to Jimmy, the very, very top of that totem pole and seeing how they work together. For me to see this guy who is proud and Jimmy is also proud, but their lives are drastically different. I just felt it was like very important Mm -hmm. that like at the end of the day, the people who were on the front lines of pulling off this world record day felt like, they were seen and yeah. heard. Another piece I re- love about this sort of Jimmy's final walkthrough is that the song that I used is one stem of the song that I used when Jimmy first walks out of the elevator in front of the entire crowd. Triumphant walking out and then a softer version of that same triumph as he goes back to the kitchen. I really wanted that motif to play through both yeah. of those scenes. Part of this experience was we were seeing that kind of a really real side of Jimmy. Like at the start of it, it's like, here's Jimmy the celebrity. But over the course of the experiences, here's Jimmy. And that is represented just by simply using one stem of the song. Right. That storyline of Jimmy going from top to bottom is yeah. exemplified most in the last line of the video, which was one of the first things I was sure of as I was watching the selects. I hate to say it, but that was taken from the middle of the day. (laughs) I was wondering if you were going to say it. I was like, I don't know if we should ruin the magic. Should we just cut it? I mean, it has like enough viewership now and people have enjoyed it. I appreciate it because I think it's, it's, I think it's an honest part of filmmaking. At bottom line, we're trying to tell uh, a story and we're trying to get uh, the emotional beats that we think are the most effective as possible. And so it means this clip happened in the middle of the day. No, it's much better if we bring it to the end. That is part of the process of editing and storytelling. It's an open secret, I would say, that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. In that moment, I had just filmed him taking a ton of photos. Yeah. And he's almost actually proud Mm. of the amount of photos he's taken. And he's asking me, what'd you think? Mm. And then he goes on to say, how many photos do you think that was? And we're trying to calculate the math. Which is funny because in this moment, we cut to the amount of photos that he's taken. So it really is an honest moment. That's that's true. We're bringing, it is the exact same beat. Hello, cheeky segue. There's a few products we would like to share with you. So take a look. Get funding for your content. That's it. That's what Creative Juice can offer. Juice funds have helped creators upgrade their gear, hire editors, or 
start the podcast they've always dreamed of. Which was amazing for us because we uh, really underestimated how expensive a podcast is. It's a lot of beans. But what's really exciting about Justo is that you stay in total control of your content. Which is awesome because it's only you that knows exactly what you need for your channel. Juice just supports you with funding and resources. Think invoicing, expenses, income, and more. Let Juice automate the busy work of your business so you can do what you do best creating. 70% of Juice Fund's creators used funding to build out their teams. And so you could use those funds to, well, hire an editor. Wait, we're editors. We're editors. You could hire us. Go to the link in the description and sign up for Juice today at getjuice.com slash getfunding. We need to have a serious conversation. I need you to stop spending your entire day looking for music that actually isn't even that good. But Track Club is actually full of bloody great music. Their entire library is banger after banger and mash. We also know that audio is essential for creating an emotional world for your audience. This is why beyond having great music, Track Club has Mixlab, which allows you to use stems to customize it to your situation. For example, there's this documentary song that I really liked that sounded hopeful. But if I soloed the vocals, that sounded scary. Or I just used the mallets to create a build. And Track Club makes it super simple to avoid copyright strikes. Paste your channel's URL into Track Club and Bob's your uncle, your videos will be cleared automatically. My uncle's name's Dave. Guess what? They're offering your first month for free. So go to the link in the description and get your free month of Track Club today. It took longer than I anticipated. It took, uh, I think, a little over two months. Yeah, a little over two months to make. And you're friends with Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. You think Jimmy wasn't calling me, being like, how's it going? How's What's it going, going on? Yeah. It's been two like months. Like three days yeah. later. Yeah. 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 So was it done yet? Yeah. 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 Well, he starts like putting it? you up directly. He's like, what the <laughs> <laughs> Can I see a cut? No, they shielded yeah. me from Jimmy. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. How's it coming yeah. together? What does it look like? You know. And I will give him and his team and Reed so much credit because, first of all, I think we've built a, enough trust and enough of a relationship for him to obviously invite us out and be like, you can do this, you can film this. Yeah. But being in that hallway, it was just me, him and Reed, you know, yeah. in a lot of those conversations, you hear my voice a lot. If you take a photo, you're out. You're, I've said that 30,000 times. Yeah, but I think they need to get the security guards now. They were totally comfortable with me rolling on that. It would have been warranted for Reed or, or Jimmy to turn and be like, this is too stressful, like stop recording me. Uh, but he never did. Was there a moment you considered that? There were some moments that I did, but as the day went on, me and Jimmy were communicating really well about like how he felt and I was checking in with him. So like, again, I give him a ton of credit that I think he trusted us to roll and, mm -hmm. and for us not to include things that were mm -hmm. out of context mm -hmm. or that were, you or know, and I think that's- be misread. Yeah, yeah, that's also who we are, right? Like we're covering this industry and Jimmy's the biggest figure in our industry. Like- we we're not here to make a a hit piece. So like I think we also have that trust and, yeah. and credibility. Part of it is also trusting the audience to be able to enjoy this documentary the way that you intended. It's a good it's a good That's topic. A good one. That's a good subject. Yeah. This documentary suddenly felt different. It, it kind of goes against what is known as the metal sort of standard language of YouTube. So how did you come to trust the audiences that they will watch this video. That was a constant conversation between the three of us. Yeah. It was me and Colin and Samir too. It's just like all of us really just saying, this is what we want it to be. Mm -hmm. This is what we want the audience to accept. Let's just say, screw it and trust them to do that. We also have this amazing gift of over the last year, we've built a talk show where we get to talk to creators and we would have creators come into our office like Ryan Trahan mm -hmm. and sit there and talk about making redemptive work, making work that you know yeah. makes you feel excited. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then we'd have Hassan Minaj come in and talk about 
you know, not feeding into the algorithm and being an artist. Every week you get inspired by the people you're making a show with. And you're you're also cutting the interviews, like you yeah. guys know. Spending time in these interviews where we actually are re-watching these sections mm-hmm. where the person on the other side, even Tommy Innit, Tommy yeah. Innit was like profound when he yeah. came in and spoke to us and hearing and and making sure like a lot of these people are preaching this this value of like really being true to yourself as an artist on this platform. Yeah. And I think that reinforcement as we were going into this, there was a turning point for me where I went from having anxiety about the piece to just like, I'm so happy this piece doesn't follow the rules. Mm. And it's funny because it it follows filmmaking rules. It's like, yeah. it, you know, but like, you know, there's moments where it's like, it's slow. Yeah. There's a funny like meta right now of streamers reacting to it. Mm-hmm. So Ludwig watched it on stream, XQC watched it on stream. And there's moments where I'm like, holy shit. We left that that slow. Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, like I'm yeah. like watching it and I'm like, there's that much time that just is like happening. Absolutely there is. And there yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> but well, yeah. We, we, we made it We made it for the person who was going to get to the end. Yeah. We made yeah. it for ourselves. Yeah. yeah, and we made it for ourselves. Yeah, but like as we yeah. were editing and making decisions, it was like, this is for the person who's going to get to the end. So we don't have to worry about like, what if they only watch 20%? It's not like we didn't scrutinize every single part of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. take it from like 47 minutes down to 39. We watched it through who knows how many times. You watched it way more, you know. But at the end, we were, the three of us would sit together, watch it, and we would scrutinize everything. We'd be like, yeah. did that frame hang too long? Yeah. And we would cut it. And then we'd watch it again with that frame shorter and be like, a mm, little longer. And we were aggressive about the fact that Every time we made a small change, we needed to watch the whole thing again. Mm -hmm. Some of our team might say this is like a painstaking thing that we've done throughout the last year, but like our entire team will sit and watch edits with us. And, you know, that's the only way, like that time is the only way you can start to share a collective intuition. And and our team, especially working out of a thousand square feet, I think we all started to to, learn about storytelling together and learn... um, about everything that everyone was doing. And so when we would sit and watch this piece, like our team was not afraid to give feedback and also uh, had really good feedback, uh, which is which is important. Like the quality of your feedback is really important. Yeah, and yeah. and and what you're you're pegging it against, which is our storytelling standards. Yeah. Right. And so like that's that's where we have to live is like what are our storytelling standards? What are your storytelling standards? I think transformation is like at the top of that, right? Yeah. Transformation of characters, transformation of audience, transformation of of like self, right? And so like transformation only comes through if we're actually uh, bringing emotion forward. You know, we look at our show as an educational show because that's transformation. Mm-hmm. You started yep. over here yep. without the knowledge, you end over here with the knowledge. So are we articulating this curriculum properly? Mm-hmm. So when we do interviews, if watch our interview with Mr. Beast manager, Reed, we're wild with the graphics because we feel like that articulates and that can change you. That can leave you with the knowledge. It'll stick in your head. You're a new person because you watched our piece. And anything that gets in the way of that articulation, I think for us cutting interviews, it's anything that is not clearly articulated, we cut Mm. everything. I feel like for me, it's I don't want stakes that aren't real and I don't want redundancy unless it's intentional. And that's like a big part of when we're cutting anything, I think, is like, is this redundant? If so, 
is it proving an extra point that we left it in? I think there's, yeah, there's a really clear difference between redundancy and repetition. Mm. And repetition is a tool. Redundancy just gets in the way. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. How do you two look at storytelling? Well, I was just thinking that you're yeah. saying what Hayden calls storytelling. Hayden says storytelling is change. Yeah. And that's literally another word for change. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, it was, we do follow that same philosophy with our interviews. It's yeah. like, here is some storytelling technique that you can use in editing that you might not know. Let's spend an hour talking about it and then you can now use that information to then inform your next edit. Yeah. And we try to stay focused too as far yeah. as like who our audience is at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Because there's so much information that we're bouncing around that could be for this audience or this audience. But we yeah. want to talk to editors. We want to mm. talk to storytellers. And so everything has to go through that lens. Yeah. It's been a massive challenge because yeah. it's, we know that we've got, we've said the YouTube editing audiences and yeah. we've now captured the traditional editing audience and we're now discovering there's not as much sync as we thought or assumed. Yeah. And so it's been interesting having to package a traditional editor interview as like, here's why a YouTube editor should listen to him yeah. and then vice versa. Here we've interviewed a web creator. How will a traditional editor, why would they want to listen to this person? I think one thing that's really important to recognize is like on YouTube, we're all unscripted editors, right? And so unscripted editing is is different, oh, yeah. first and foremost. And even unscripted and traditional is very different from how we do unscripted. Yeah. Like the way we work, think about the premise that we flew out to New Jersey without a plan. The only plan was to roll. Yeah. We rolled on stuff, came back and we're like, I think we got something, you know? And like some documentaries happen like that, but- there's too much risk for like a television network to take to be like that. To send the a idea. crew of 15 yeah. people. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to spend 2 million right Yeah, now. and yeah. just be like, let's see what we get. Let's let the plan for post-production surprise us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's not a thing. Yeah, <laughs> but I think how nimble we are as YouTube creators is yeah. like, let's go out and see. And that was that was not a crew, right? That was me and Colin with two EOSRs. Like yeah. that's, that's what we did. And then we came back with it. And so I think like being a, a YouTube or a web editor is a lot of like, let's see what we got and let's make it in the edit. And that, that is a little bit different. You know, I think that's probably changing now mm. where, you know, now you have a lot more risk in what people are spending on videos. Yeah. But I think the goal for an internet creator is to keep your cost of production at zero, as close to zero as possible. Um, so that your opportunity to create change toss something out is like, you feel good about it. I've noticed that change in terms of like uh, my entire career, especially with Logan is he filmed anything and everything, gives me the footage and says, make something. Like do what you want. I give him something the next day and he went, that's fucking great. Off we go. That was daily vlogging. Right? Yeah, that yeah. was a daily vlogging and even yeah. in even the 2020 quarantine vlogs as well. It was just like, fig let's figure this out in the edit. I am now beginning to see that change where it's, there is now more risk of you spend a million dollars filming a video and then a story doesn't happen. You're in trouble now. They have that risk. I was like, we have to ensure that we can get some form of content. And so there is a little bit of pre-planning. We've got to make sure we can get some form of beats since there is something for the editor to work with. And how, how does that change feel for you specifically? Less work for me. <laughs> but do you as you mean even as a consumer, how does it feel to see that shift happening? Right now, it's a little bit awkward because is it's we're now to an extent trying to figure out these are the story beats we want and but we haven't figured out how to make it believable yet. Mm -hmm. I've been consulting for all the creators and I'm kind of encouraging them to think of the story before they film. But I'm also then encouraging them that when you start filming, abandon it. Just just dump it. Like I know you're trying to think of a story because the because universe never responds to your pre-planned idea. Prepare, don't plan. For, yeah, for it's this, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Prepare, learn how to think, and now they have the idea of what a story can be. Yeah. Yes, and we can go in this emotional direction to hit this beat. I think 
the challenge or the thing that I've recognized is like the incentive structure for creatives is mm. has changed a lot on YouTube, right? Yeah. Um, and Colin and I both read this book recently, Atomic Habits, and it talks a lot about how habit building happens in humans. Yeah. And they talk about four key things, which is like the cue, craving, response, reward. And I thought about it in the context of being a creative, yeah. where like there's an artistic feedback loop. Yeah. Where the cue is like, I have an idea. The craving is, I want to express this idea. Yeah. The response is, I make something. The reward is, I set it. The algorithmic feedback loop is very different. The cue is that video got a million views. The craving is I want a million views. <laughs> the response is I'm going to make something pretty similar to that video. Yeah. The reward is I got a million views. And that's why we're seeing the thumbnails that look exactly like other thumbnails because that's an algorithmic feedback loop because yeah. it is, it's reinforced, it's yeah. validated when it works. The craving I had was for the views, not that I said it. The reward of an artist is that I said it. Right, I got it out. I expressed it. Yeah. It came out of my mind, yeah, onto the page or onto the timeline. Mm-hmm. That's the reward. And that's yeah. the opposite of responding to the universe. Yeah. What yeah. the universe gives you yeah. when you turn on the camera. And so I think that's what happened. Is like on the algorithmic feedback loop side, I want to make it exactly right so it gets the million views. I don't really care if it has that character defining moment unless that supports my craving for the views. Yeah, you know. And I think that's even in some of the conversations I'm having with creators it's such an odd thing when they're the subject and they're like, how can I make a more character driven piece? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, go live it. Yeah. And I think the people who do that really well are yes theory. Like Thomas Bragg, Amar, like these guys, when the cameras are off, they are those dudes. They go live those experiences. Mm-hmm. So when you add the camera, like they're actually those characters going through that change. I also think it's about building trust with the audience. When I yeah. watch a video from Thomas, you look at you know, currently as we're filming this, he's in Africa right now. The most recent one in Somaliland that I've watched, it's pretty joyous the whole way through. There's no like fake tension about how like maybe it was dangerous or he this or that. But the one before it, he actually had to flee the country that he was in, right? And if he had just repeated that format, I wouldn't believe what he's telling me or the stories that he's telling me. Like I have to know that when he visits somewhere, he's going to authentically show me the experience that he had, whether it was joyous terrible somewhere in the middle. When creators just respond to the algorithmic feedback loop, they don't really have that trust. There's no like emotional connection. Another creator would do that where like they would have to flee the country and probably got like high retention, a bunch of views and it went, oh, I need to do that again. Yeah, yeah. That's the dangerous lesson that the the analytics can have. We work in loops. Like we, we the human mind works in these feedback loops. So I I totally think it's, it's a lot of work to not dig into that. Like, I'm not saying we're not victim to that, right? Oh, yeah. Like we, we live in our analytics. We look at stuff that works for retention. But what's funny is I was texting with you about this. Like yeah. Logan with Impulsive, I think Impulsive is a very entertaining, fun show. Mm-hmm. They started adding these like super cuts about the guest in the beginning. Guys, our guest today is the television icon, Rob Deerdeck. <laughs> My brother modeled the Team 10 house after the fantasy No, fight. look, he met with me. And it was like, I'm going to be a billionaire. <laughs> you got to come down here. I was like, bro, I'm house. not going to the Team 10 house. You know what I'm saying? And I'm a fan of Impulsive. Yeah. And I started watching and I was like, that supercut is too much. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wait, we do supercuts. Yeah. Is it too much for an audience to like ingest this? intense story about the guest. When I clicked on the video, my expectation was just to watch a fun conversation between them. And that made me look, you know, more from a, just an audience member and a consumer rather than from the data. Cause we make that decision based on like, we're able to keep the viewer longer when we do that. Mm -hmm. But do I like it? And I had to start to reevaluate it, right? And be like, 
do we need it all the time? Do I like it all the time? I think that's like a really interesting question for creators to ask themselves. It's like, you know, are you the consumer of your own content? If so, try and watch something in the same genre. What do you like, not like about it? And not from how many views did it get or anything, just like, how did it feel to watch it? What do we want to do as artists compared to what will work for the biggest majority of audiences? I call them the video essay intros. Like, is that overwhelming for the audiences? Is that actually risking uh, the audience's experiences? Because like we're overloading them with information and it went, nah, f this, I'm out. I, I, just, I wanted a conversation, but this is, this is giving me too much. I'm not interested in this, I'm out. But I think also from a uh, editing standpoint, like when you're cutting interviews, so the majority of our year has been cutting interviews. When we would look at an, an intro that Chris or, or Tyga on our team would do, we'd take a step back and be like, that stylistically represents how cool and, you know, again, like that's the brand we want to be building. Like stylistically, that's super cool. And it was almost like this lost art of editing because as we were cutting interviews, like there's there's less post-production that goes into that. There's less storytelling. There's less of those you know, exciting moments. So the, the video essay was also the moment to like shine. Hassan Minhaj is one of the master storytellers of our generation. But it didn't happen overnight. 10 years, one month and nine days of training. Yeah, we don't just cut interviews. Look what else we can do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an identity piece. When we put out the Mr. Beast doc, there was multiple people who hit me up and we're like, who was there filming with you guys? And I was like, no, it was us. We were the ones filming. Like, we are the, those guys. They're like, oh, I didn't even know you guys did that. Yeah. And you're like, no, that's where our career has started. It's our whole career has been Colin and I traveling around with cameras. And you're like, the identity is 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 sometimes challenging to communicate. The majority of people know us as guys who who interview people and and you know talk. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's like the uh, that's a really interesting balance of like trying to communicate the identity that you know uh, yeah. for yourself as a creator and as an artist. So I'd love to talk about some of like the uh, the nitty gritty behind your editing your interviews and the talk show and, and how that's different from saying the documentary and, and what that process is for you guys. I think editing interviews has surprised us the way that we edit it. Samir was talking about it earlier, but you know, I think the goal was let's do something really low lift where we just press record and then cut. You know, we can commit to that once a week. Let's yeah. just press record and put it together, cut angles. Yeah. Don't really even need B-roll, A-roll, no need. Yeah. They refuse. They, and uh, they and I, I like can't handle it. Like yeah. I actually just can't watch it. I'm like itching. Like mm -hmm. if you watch the way that I watch a YouTube video, if it starts to like, if I start to lose interest, I'm like, Next 15 seconds, yeah. next 15 seconds. If I even think I know where you're going, I'm bored. Yeah. I'm like, I know where he's going with that. So I'm not going to watch. So inherently, I'm like, I'm a tough cookie to crack, I guess. Like with like, I I start moving things around. And if I watch the selects of a long form interview or just the raw footage, I'm already starting to understand that like, okay, this question was asked here, but then our guests started kind of searching for the answer okay, they actually started talking about it 15 seconds later. So let's cut out that 15 seconds where they're just searching for what the answer is. But then that question and answer actually relates more to this thing 20 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. so, so let's just move the entire question earlier in the interview. And that's actually not the most interesting interview. So let's move that whole part of the interview. So let's move it all to the latter half. And let's take the most interesting questions and answers and put them right up front so everyone's really interested and get a good cycle of questions and answers that are the most interesting in the beginning. Is there an instance of that with an interview? That's every that's single interview. That's, that's literally yeah. every single yeah. interview. I, I think yeah. the only one that is left 
pretty much as it happened was the Mr. Beast one. We went to go visit Jimmy in, in Greenville. We filmed at his, his new $10 million studio. And this is at a time where like not many people had, you know, no one, I don't think had like a long form interview with Jimmy yet. We had done a few like virtual ones during the pandemic, but he had invited us out to go see the new studio. And we filmed a bunch and then we did this long form interview. And when we came back, we had the long form interview and I was like, let's put that out. And I remember Colin and I talked about it and Colin was like, we're, how, we're not just going to put out like a two hour interview with him. And Colin then took it and cut it down into like a tight 14 minutes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that was my first experience yeah. with us potentially transitioning to an interview show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll spend some time with the footage. And it came back 14 minutes long and I had recorded VO on my phone. And we, and Colin interviewed Jimmy's mom and it was a video essay and it's a great video. I mean, we sent it to Jimmy and Jimmy called immediately after he watched it and was like, that's your best video. That moved so well. It was like, that's it, you know? And so there was talk of like, that's the video we made. And it went out, got a million views and it was like, great. But I had this itch to put out the two hour piece. And I remember I called Jimmy too. And I was like, you know, cause Jimmy said to us when we were there, he was like, you're not just going to put this out. Right. Like, just like, <laughs> just like this, like you're going to cut it a little bit. I called him and I was like, you cool if we just put out the two hour piece. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I don't know how it's going to do. And that is the video, 15 million, 15 views. million <laughs> views, Yeah, 15 million views with a AVD of 40 minutes still. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> we don't have those stats yet. So it was this interesting moment, I think, of like recognizing that it is dependent on the guest. It's yeah. de- obviously, and Jimmy's, you know, a different beast. Uh, <laughs> d- no, d- don't, don't encourage him for that. Don't, don't encourage him credit yeah. for that. But it is, it is dependent on that. But I do remember that specifically as like a moment between Colin and I of watching Colin have this identity feel of like, for you specifically, like, are you the guy who travels and talks and then we just put that out like the the performance is the thing mm-hmm. or is the editing the thing you know is that the craft what's the craft is the craft the conversation or is the craft the how post? you shape it yeah, yeah. How you I've, shape had, it. I've had to build some self-worth or an appreciation of self in terms of like my performance of how i speak the questions that i ask how prepared am i and still retain a little bit of the editing like again like we do over edit I don't know if it's over edit, but we edit our interviews in a very unique way. It's about respecting the audience's time, yeah. but also making sure they get the most amount of value. Like, I'm not saying we're not going to put out an interview that's an hour and 15 minutes long. We do. It's just that it started at two and a half hours. And it's rearranged so that it is the easiest possible consumption. Everything makes sense. Stories are aligned in certain ways to make it transform you more. It's a very particular process. It's just we're trying to get you to the end so that you actually learn all of it. That trust that you guys have built with your audience is something I really appreciate Mm -hmm. um, and I really resonate because I know that if I'm going to see a Colin and Samir video that pops into my feed, like... I may not know who the guest is, but I know that I trust you enough that you've cultivated a great conversation. So I think that trust is like one of the things that I personally admire about you guys. Our roots are in documentary. So like when we're editing an interview, we're thinking about it as a mini documentary about that person. Yeah. So like this, the there we think about origin story and we think about moment of transformation. We think of, you know, like we, we are editing it to flow like a doc. Creators are having a hard time finding an editor that they can vibe with and that they can trust. And so why do you think that is and what can we do about that? There's a lack of patience uh, in our industry. I think everyone wants to move at a really fast pace. When you're a creative, like, and you have ideas and visions, like, are you willing to bring someone in and are they willing and are you willing to go through this really weird, uncomfortable 
Maturation. Yeah, maturation and transformation together of like we're now creative partners. Or yeah. intuition know. has no vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna have different vocabulary for every creative partnership. For us, it's like skip it a bop, skip it a boop. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, exactly. Yeah. Actually, yeah. to his point of patience, that did not. That was not the case when I joined the team. I walked in the room. I remember vividly the first day I was working in the office with Colin and Samir. We sat down and we watched a cut of Call Her Daddy, I believe. Mm-hmm. A video essay that we did on a podcast. And we watch it all the way through. And it's just me and Colin and Samir. And Samir turns to me first. And he says, Chris, do you have any thoughts on the story? How does it feel? Do you have any notes? And I literally looked at him and I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. And I said... No, I think it's pretty good. Like it feels, yeah. it feels good to me. And and that it took so much time for me to learn how to work in this system that they'd already created with Colin. As a creator, when you hit a stride, a point where you can afford to hire someone, you are a bullet train, right? And you want to to keep the train on the tracks and keep it accelerating at that exact same pace. But you're asking someone who's standing still to jump onto it. And I think your expectation. Uh, is so much so that they are fully ready to jump as fast and exactly be aligned with you. And I think that's uh, that expectation is what's causing the shortage because there's not a shortage of video editors. Check any creator's inbox. There's video editors in there every day. The patience that we have to have as creators to say, we are going to bring this person in. And I know that on day one, they're not going to be ready. And I know that on month three, they're not going to be ready because I also can't get there where I'm going to have the time to sit next to them and leave them alone to do a cut. And like management is not something that you signed up for as a creator. You didn't sign up to watch someone's career or help someone's career grow or help their craft grow. You have to care about that. And editing is painfully slow. Yep. Yeah. Teaching someone to edit is even slower. Yeah. And it's like one of the worst experiences in the world. Yeah. And that's, I think that is, that is key because there is not a lack of video editors. Like Samir said, there's so many 18 year olds yeah. willing and ready and excited to edit videos for people. However, I do think that there is a profound lack of technical ability in the YouTube sphere because all of these people who aspire to be video editors, they are not training. They are just watching YouTube videos and they are editing their own YouTube videos. And yes, editing is practice. But for me, it took editing somebody else's work to develop. And Hayden, I I am so thankful for your editing breakdown series because of how informative it was for me as a professional in the space who really did not have his feet down under him to see you bringing in specifically things from Hollywood, from Mm. TV shows, from movies. We cannot, as video editors on YouTube, be looking only to YouTube to learn how to edit YouTube videos. We can't. We just can't. We have to look at what are the things that have stood the test of time. And that is often movies and documentaries. But even you highlighting the specifics in a YouTube creator's videos, like you did a breakdown on Matthew Beam. And within the first 15 seconds, you show one of his frames and you say, this should actually be in the middle of yeah. the frame. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me was like an immediate gift of like, okay, now I have vocabulary around what's right and what's wrong. And like cutting in on the eyes where yeah. the eyes always have to stay in the same uh, yeah, place. We do that now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like I brought that to the rest of the team yeah. that day and was like, guys, that blew we my all mind. have to do yeah. this The forever. first time Chris did it, I was like, oh yeah, that feels better. It just feels smoother, yeah. Yeah. Since editing or having access to editing software was, well, so accessible now, and then part of it, and actually having an understanding of storytelling, having an understanding of flow, having an understanding of uh, motion and feel, I think that is a skill set 
that everyone has their own definitions of what that is. And so I think the challenge is, is that having an editor who has foundational knowledge that you can go, okay, there is some potential here, but then acknowledging that there is a skill gap. As with our experiences, we know what's obvious. And so we get frustrated when we see an editor do what not do what was obvious to us. Yeah. But that's because we've had the experience to know what's obvious. Yeah. You know, creativity is, is subjective. So like, yeah. we have a certain way we want to edit. There's a gap between what you know, what your skill set is and that. Mm-hmm. But I think the last piece of why this shortage is happening is authorship, yeah. where it's like you cut Logan Paul's vlogs for a very long time. Yeah. The world knows those as Logan Paul's vlogs, yeah. but that's your body of work. Did you ever struggle with the level of authorship there of like, is this my work or is this Logan's work? Are There's we, a lot to unpack there. Are we yeah, working? Yeah, yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. But I think, yeah. I do think like when you find an editor who's talented enough to craft a brand at that scale, oftentimes in my experience, I've seen that with the tools available and the democratization of media, that editor probably just wants to be their own creator. Exactly. Hey, that's, where get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where we get. That's where we get Hayden yeah. Hilliard Smith, yeah. right? Yeah. What do you think is going to be potentially changing if we're editors in the creator economy in the next few years? I think the compensation model will change. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing. I think again, like because the hardest thing to find is is an editor that shares you in, your intuition, and they do become a creative partner. And I think uh, the incentives have to match that, right? Like they have to match that. Like we're growing together. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I don't know exactly how, but I think it will. I think access to education is already starting to change. Yeah. Even the fact that your show exists, right. right. And that there are creators like you, that's going to compound. There will be other creators like you that start to spread education. Uh, and I think over time we'll definitely see the impact of that. Yeah.